Good morning, Renaissance. We are going to read our scripture this morning. Shout out to all my paper Bibles. Any paper Bibles in the building? Yes. It's always one. Two. It's two. It's two today. If you don't have a paper Bible, your apps will suffice for now. But on the screens, we will have the scripture. We are reading from Esther chapter 3. Uh, verses 8 through 11, and also chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, through 17, excuse me. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it, is, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamithia, the Agagite, the enemy of the, law, the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you are alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night, oh, excuse me, three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Pray with me. Uh, Daddy, we thank you that you will open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. What's going on? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. Um, hey, I love a good story. I can't get enough of, of stories. Actually, I read a lot of books uh, that have stories. I, I love watching a new series on Netflix uh, with a story with a great plot. And whenever Netflix asks me, do you want to continue watching? The answer is always yes, keep the party going. I love stories because they have a way of bringing you in in ways uh, that simply somebody telling you something wouldn't do to you. And as a matter of fact, all throughout scripture, you see these amazing stories. So, hey, if you're new here or if it's your first time back in a long time, uh, you have picked an amazing time uh, to come to Renaissance because for the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at biblical stories, stories that you should know. Uh, these stories come out of scripture, and uh, depending on how many times you've been to Sunday school as a kid growing up, you may or may not have heard these, but they are going to be really, really powerful uh, all throughout scripture, actually, you see this power of story. Uh, when Jesus wanted to convince people of a truth, when he wanted to get a truth across, uh, Jesus oftentimes did it through a story. See, it's one thing to give somebody the equation for water, to say it's H2O. It's another thing to pour a cup of water on their head. 
And stories have a way of bringing us along with them. Stories have a way of putting us in the position of the person that's experiencing what's going on in a really powerful way. When Jesus wanted to talk about God's love, for example, he didn't say, yo, you know what? God is like a really good dad that's not really mad at his kids. He could have just said that truth, but instead he told the story. He says a certain father had two sons. One of the sons takes half of his money, shakes out, spends it all on, uh, on gambling and partying and all this other stuff, and then he comes back. And I like to imagine that Jesus is like an old black preacher and he has his, his rag and he's wiping his head and he pauses. And everybody's expecting Jesus to say, this guy is going to get condemned. But instead, uh, Jesus um, tells the story that the man runs to his son. And instead of condemning him, he gives him kisses and hugs him. And he tells everybody, yo, kill the fattened calf. We're about to have a party. And that's the type of thing, the truth that gets embedded in our lives that we can all remember. And we can all put ourselves in that story. So as we're going through these stories, um, we're going to look at a couple different things, a couple different ones in the next few weeks. Um, and it, here's one thing that I love about stories, particularly the stories in the Old Testament. You and I, uh, people, are God's favorite instrument that he uses to write stories. God doesn't have a word processor. Uh, he doesn't use uh, a Mac. God uses people oftentimes uh, as the instrument to which he tells his story. And we're going to see a story today in scripture from the life of a woman named Esther. And uh, man, Esther is an amazing story. Listen, Esther is much better than loving hip hop, uh, housewives, all of that stuff combined. You got drama, you got beef, you got haters in the corner, you got people getting beat up and killed. And this is like, listen, people would pay millions to pilot this show and all of you would watch this as your guilty pleasure. Story of Esther is a great one. It starts out with this dude named Xerxes. Uh, some Bible translations have it as Ahasuerus. I just chose Xerxes because I can't pronounce the second name, and I don't want to ride the struggle bus for the next 30 minutes trying to pronounce that name. So we're going to call him Xerxes. And Xerxes is a king, and he's a money-hungry chauvinist. And he's sitting in a palace, and he sends a text to his wife, Queen Vashti. Says, hey, yo, I'm in the palace. Come holla at your boy, right? So he's bragging to all his friends about Queen Vashti, and in, an un, in a really unconventional move, she refuses to come. Like, he knows she got the message, he saw the read receipt, right? Like, you read it. You just refused to come. And that was a pretty bold move by Vashti because she could have been killed just for that because her sole purpose as the queen was to make the king look good. So the king gets really upset, and uh, for whatever reason, he doesn't uh, do anything to her life. But he tells his, um, his, all his workers, he says, listen, we need to find me a new queen, because Vashti, she ain't got it, right? She ain't rocking with me. Um, and he has this, like, bachelor type of competition. 400 women, uh, and his eunuchs and everybody goes out to gather the prettiest woman in all of Persia, uh, and they gather them all around. And this woman named Esther was one of those women. And for one year, these women got beauty treatments. For a year straight, nails did, hair did, everything did, right? For a year straight. Like, if you're not flossing after a year of beauty treatments, and I don't know what to tell you. So for a year straight, they get these beauty treatments, and finally, all of these women, one by one, go in front of the king. And it says that uh, the king, when he saw Esther, um, he was taken by her, and he decided to make her his wife, to make her the, the queen. 
So uh, uh, Esther becomes a queen, and she has this cousin named Mordecai, who kind of adopted her as like a father because uh, Esther's parents ha had died. Um, and Mordecai is her cousin that's kind of tagging along a little bit, that's trying to get on. Like, you all got them cousins, right? You all got one that they see you get on a little bit, um, and then they try to tag along and, and get with you. So Mordecai is uh, Esther's cousin, and when Esther goes to the palace, he's kind of hanging around. Now, for a really quick parenthetical thing, uh, these, these um, Esther and Mordecai are Jews living in Persia. Now, during this time, there was this thing called the exile where Jews no longer lived in their own land. They didn't have their own government. They didn't have their own temples. They didn't have anything of their own. They were people that were dispersed all throughout the land. And Esther and Mordecai were Jews, but they weren't really uh, highly regarded in society. They weren't widely accepted. So Mordecai tells Esther, yo, don't tell the king that you're a Jew. Like, if he finds out that you're a Jew, he might not like you. So just keep that on the hush. You don't have to tell him. He doesn't need to know what's going on. So as uh, the story continues to go on, um, she and Mordecai are, are in the palace. And Mordecai finds out that there's a plot to kill the king. So two of Xerxes' uh, guards in the front gate are plotting to kill him, and then Mordecai snitches, right? He's like, nope, he's not wearing the stop snitching t-shirts. He rats out on um, the people trying to kill the king. And Xerxes is very grateful to him after they do some research and find out that people were, in fact, trying to kill him. So Mordecai is earning favor uh, with the king. So now this comes in this new guy named Haman, which we read in chapter 3. Now, Haman is an interesting guy. We might look at him in a couple of weeks because Haman is Xerxes' right-hand man, and he has a whole lot of power, a whole lot of influence, but when he walks in, um, everybody is supposed to bow down and talk about how good Haman is, but Mordecai refuses to bow down. Mordecai, for one reason or another, the scripture doesn't tell us why he refuses, but Mordecai doesn't bow down. He doesn't respect him like that, and he decides not to bow down. So Haman, even though he has so much good stuff going for him, he decides, um, he finds out through a back channel that Mordecai is a Jew. So Haman decides, we're going to get all the Jews killed. In order for him to get to Mordecai, he wanted to wipe out all of the Jews. And at this point, Haman didn't know that Esther was a Jew. So word, get back, word gets back to Mordecai that the king agrees the king says, you know what? We'll put out a decree signed and stamped, signed, sealed, delivered with my signet ring that all of the Jews can be killed. Mordecai, terrified, goes to Esther. Now, she's his last hope. The king has already decided that they're going to be killed. Uh, the king's right-hand man is completely driven to see Mordecai killed and wiped out. And we have a really unlikely hero in the story named Esther. So Mordecai goes to Esther, and he says um, to her, Hey, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews might, uh, will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, he asked her, this is the question that we're going to land on today, but who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When, it, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now Mordecai asks Esther the question that rings out. Who knows that, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time 
like this. It's this. Maybe you are here for a reason. Maybe all of the occurrences and all of the coincidences and all of the things that have happened down the line, incident by incident, that have led you to this place, maybe all of these things are adding up to something that you're supposed to be here. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. It doesn't mention God. It doesn't mention prayer. It doesn't mention anything uh, to that effect. And it's the only book in the Bible, and it could be for one of two reasons. Right? Maybe the author just forgot. Maybe he was writing on parchment paper and he was like, he got to the end like, dang, I didn't mention nothing about God. And he couldn't go back in a word file and insert God in a couple places later. So he was like, you know what? Forget it. We're just not going to put it in. Either that or it was intentional. It was a, a literary device that the author was trying to communicate truth to us through what he or she had written. And here's what we see in Esther. And this is an amazing truth with so much application to us today. Uh, the story of Esther is an example of how God works, not merely by his miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. And this is the reason that Esther is so great. Not because you see God doing some miraculous thing where, um, you know, fire comes down from heaven or it's just some amazing story that makes you say, oh, wow, man, I wish... God would do something like that in my life. Esther is a story about God doing really amazing things, not uh, uh, in some spectacular event, but that God is faithful to his word in a really ordinary way. Uh, not through a miracle, but through ordinary events and through ordinary people. See, if you were to go back and study Esther, uh, read the book some more, you'll see that Esther was not an exceptional superhero person. A lot of theologians contrast Esther to Daniel because when Daniel got to the king's palace, he refused to eat the food and he refused to go along with everything else. He wanted to maintain his religious purity, but Esther got there and it was all good. She was like, yo, we got bacon in there? All right, yo. What have we been waiting for? Esther is not a superstar. She's not a superhero. She's not someone that rises because she has done so many things right. It's actually a superficial king that just thinks that she's fine. And here's what Mordecai is asking her, hey, maybe you have come to this place for such a time like this. Maybe God has been working in your life, not through miraculous things that have, make everybody's jaw drop, but maybe God has been working in your life in, in really subtle ways, ordinary events, in ways that add up, that have put you in this place, that you can do something great for God. I'm alive today, actually, um, because of um, uh, God's intervention in my life, not uh, some miraculous event where God healed me supernaturally, uh, but because of uh, a really ordinary time uh, with an ordinary person. Uh, when I was younger, we, my family and I, we were living in Yonkers. Shout out to the 914. We in the building, y'all. There we go. We got five of us in here. We're deep. Uh, so I was a young kid. We were living in Yonkers, and um, my dad was going to go to a meeting one night. And he had been to these meetings a hundred times before, but for whatever reason, that night, uh, something just told him, you know what? Don't go to the meeting. Went through my bedtime routine, uh, got a bath, and was getting ready for bed, and out of the blue, this never happened before, my lips turned blue, and I passed out. I was having a seizure. Now, let me give you some background. Had my father gone to the meeting, it would have just been me, my brother, who would have been like six at the time, and my mother. Now, my mother has a lot of qualities and, and gifts. She's brilliant. She's caring. She's loving. She's beautiful. She is a lot of things. But calm under pressure. <laughs> it, 
It is not what the Lord has blessed her with. Let's just say that. I had fallen out on the floor, foaming from the mouth from a seizure. She was, fall out, she was laid out on the floor, foaming at the mouth, just from panic. And I say this jokingly, but also seriously, they had to wheel her into the hospital as like, it was me. Like, what happened to you? Like, listen, this is another story. Let's bring him in first. Now, it wasn't some miraculous event. My father didn't get a prophetic word. He didn't mail in for a, a, a prayer cloth from somebody that told him, hey, don't go to the meeting. It wasn't um, a, a voice that spoke to him over the voicemail machine. It wasn't something, nothing had to stop traffic for him to know. It was just a still, small voice that said, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't go to the meeting tonight. And sometimes, listen, listen, listen. Sometimes God doesn't work through these huge, uh, miraculous events. Sometimes God works through ordinary events and ordinary people. And here's where we see in, in this scripture that God is always at work in spite of appearances. This is what Esther teaches us, that God is always at work in spite of appearances. Nowhere in the book of Esther do they stop to even mention God. Nowhere in the book of Esther do people perceive what God is doing. Nowhere in the book of Esther do people notice the hand of God in what they're doing in their life, but God was at work in spite of its appearances. All throughout the Old Testament, God has done some miraculous things with the children of Israel. And uh, if you guys are new to church, all throughout the Old Testament, you see these, this one group called the children of Israel that God promised uh, to protect as his covenant nation. And then God said he's going to protect them and lead them. And uh, throughout the generations, uh, Jesus Christ was born through the lineage of David in this, in this tribe of, uh, of the children of Israel. Now, God has promised to protect them, and sometimes God protected them like he did from the Egyptians, where he split the Red Sea, and they were running through uh, the Red Sea on dry land, and when the Egyptians were trying to come up behind them, as soon as the Egyptians came in the water, the water collapsed and crashed, and all of them died, and their chariots got messed up. But sometimes, this is what God is telling us through Esther, sometimes it's the splitting of the Red Sea, but sometimes it's ordinary events and ordinary people, and God is still working in spite of appearances that may feel, make us feel to the contrary, that may make us fear that God is not with us, that God can be working in your life, God can be working in my life, despite the fact uh, that you can't see what's going on in your life. Plagues of fire and all these different things that God has done. Uh, but God uh, wants to remind us, I believe, that, listen, he can work in sometimes miraculous ways, but also sometimes in really small seemingly meaningless ways. As a matter of fact, to be perfectly honest, some of the most godly moments of my life have come not through something ridiculous, something monumental, uh, but they've come at the, just the perfect time. I remember months into the church plant process, um, I was so discouraged. Um, you know, I was just beating myself up like, man, I'm not a good leader. I don't know how to do leadership team and development, and I don't know what we're going to do with the meeting space. And I, I was just really beating myself up over and over and over again. And I was just down. And seemingly out of nowhere, somebody sent me an email to encourage me. Uh, and they just said some of the things that I needed to hear. And I sat in front of my computer, and I cried. And I knew that God was with me. Again, not because uh, somebody wrote me a check for 100 Gs. I would have taken that. But because of an ordinary person doing an ordinary event at the perfect timing. Listen, God is at work despite uh, its appearances. In um, John uh, 5 and 7, uh, Jesus says this, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Write that down. John 5 and 17. My father is always 
at work to this very day, and I, too, am working. Listen, you're going to have moments in your life where it is full of uncertainty. You're going to have moments in your life where it is full of times where you don't see exactly what God is doing in your life. And maybe uh, if you've kind of stepped away from church for a while, you might have stepped away because you were like, you know what? I prayed for God to come in this way, and he didn't come, so maybe God is not real. But check this out. Listen, this is what Jesus is telling us, that God is always at work, always. There's never a time when uh, something is out of God's control, that God is always uh, at working. Theologians call this providence, uh, that uh, regardless of what you and I can detect, God is still at work. And by providence, I don't mean Rhode Island. Um, I mean that God, through his almighty and present power, upholds with his hands heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules that every leaf, of, uh, uh, every leaf and every blade of grass, every piece of rain and drought, all the good, the bad, the ugly, all of these things come to us not by chance, but by a father who gives, us to, who gives them to us, but from his fatherly hand. And the story of the Old Testament is nothing if not a story of divine providence. On every page and every promise behind every prophecy is the hand of God. He sustains all things. He directs all things. He plans all things. He ordains all things. He superintends all things. He works out all things. As Ephesians 1 and 11 says, God works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. And sometimes God does it in amazing, miraculous ways, and other times he does it in ways that we couldn't notice. But God is always, always, always working. Karen Jobes, uh, she's a theologian, and she wrote an amazing um, commentary on the book of Esther, one of the best ones out there, if you guys are are nerds and want to pick one of those up. Um, Karen Jobes, she wrote this, the great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present where God is most conspicuously absent. This is the great paradox of Esther, that God is most present uh, even where God is most absent in, in terms of him being noticed and his name being all throughout the book. See, God um, can work in ways that we couldn't understand or grasp even if uh, he tried to explain it to us. Now, not only that, but uh, the book of Esther also teaches us that God teaches us, God calls us to do ordinary things that will have an eternal impact. God calls you and me to do ordinary things that will have an eternal impact. Now, Esther puts us back on the hook. A lot of times, I'll talk to people, and they're like, you know what? Man, I want to get into ministry, or I want to do this, um, because they don't feel like God is using their life, because they feel that in order for God to do something with their life, they have to do something huge, and they have to be on a stage with a microphone, and they have to, you know, have 10,000 people listening to them. But the story of Esther reminds us, listen, that God puts people in positions Uh, that have seemingly on the surface, they're just ordinary events. Uh, Sometimes God arranges and organizes things through his sovereign hand, uh, but these things have an eternal impact. And you're not going to be, the world would be a terrible place if everybody in this room decided, you know what, I want to work at a church. That would be terrible. That would be absolutely terrible. You don't need to work in a church. You need to love people exactly where you are. You need to look for opportunities to invest in people's lives exactly where you are because who knows, maybe God has called you for such a time as this. Maybe at your job or in, in your school or in your apartment that God has arranged it that you have met this roommate or this coworker or this person at this moment. Perfect timing. That God has arranged everything for such a time as this. Here's what it says in Scripture in Ephesians 2 and 10. It says, we are God's workmanship, 
created for good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Here's what scripture says. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, it says that you are God's handiwork. You are God's creation. You are God's poema is a Greek word. You are what God is using. And here's, what it's, here's what's so dope about it. It says that God has prepared beforehand. God has prepared things beforehand for you to do. You. Not something that somebody who went to seminary and has five degrees in, 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 in Hebrew but God has prepared works for you to do. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, and if you are a Christ follower, listen, God has amazing things to do through you, sometimes through ordinary events and in ordinary ways. But God doesn't work like that where it's always a miracle, where it's always fire coming down from heaven. God wants to work through you in ordinary ways. Years ago, um, I was at a church in North Carolina, and um, I, we had this event that was planned. It was... Um, like some outreach event that I was like, it was like one of my first events that I was ever going to plan and lead. And the event did not go good at all. It was like low attendance. The vibes were off. It was like, it just felt whack. It was whack. If you've planned an event and you got your hopes up and then it was whack, you're like all disappointed. And uh, at the end of it, I said, you know what would cheer me up? Chicken. So I went out. I went out to the, I was going to go to KFC. I don't know why I didn't go to Popeye's. Forgive me for going to KFC. But I was in the parking lot, and on my way into KFC, there was a dude that stopped me. and said, hey, brother, you know, um, you got a couple of dollars. I'm just trying to get something to eat. And normally, um, you know, I have a lot of different responses. Uh, I was like, you know what? I don't have nothing else to do. Yeah, come on. Let's go, let's go grab something to eat. And we sat at the table. He told me his life story, and I was like, all right, whatever. Um, I was feeling bad. It wasn't that I didn't care. I was just feeling really bad about what was going on. And it didn't feel like spectacular what I was doing. I was listening and just nodding my head like, okay, cool, man. Um, so at the end of it, he said, hey, where do you go to church? And I told him where I went. Didn't give him like the address. And this was before we had like smartphones. So it wasn't like he could have just Googled it really easily. So I told him where the church was. And uh, that next Sunday, he just showed up. And I was like, okay. And in the middle of service, this dude stands up and starts saying, I need to say something. I'm like, whoa, this dude's intense. Don't do that here, because if you do that, we'll tackle you and throw you out. But <laughs> God is not going to use you in that way here. But <laughs> He stood up and said, hey, I was going to kill myself that day. I had lost my job. Uh, I couldn't see my kids anymore. Um, I hadn't, you know, I, I literally was broke and I was so hungry. I thought to myself, I can't even, I'm a bigger liability alive than I am dead. And at least if I'm dead, my kids will get a little life insurance money. And he was going to kill himself. And he said he was in that parking lot thinking about how he wanted to do it. But then here comes along some dude that just failed miserably in an outreach event. And I sit down and I don't say anything to this dude spectacular. Uh, and just the simple act of buying this dude some chicken and a biscuit uh, gave him faith that God was with him and he wasn't going to give up. Hey, I've heard it said that the true test of living for Christ at this present moment is in the place where we happen to be, in whatever situation we find ourselves, are we looking for opportunities to serve, to serve God? A couple months ago, after we taught our message on missions and the Great Commission, I was having an email conversation with my boy Jeff, 
and he mentioned something that was really good that I wish I would have said during the sermon, and I'll say it right now because I didn't say it then. Uh, when Jesus calls his disciples and says, hey, go into all the world, basically he's saying, as you're, as you're going into the world, this is what you should do, make disciples of all nations. And that better understood, it's not something that you need to move to Sri Lanka. It's as you go about your everyday life that you're looking for opportunities to pour into people's lives. And here's the dopest part, that God, that you're God's worksmanship, that God has already prepared in advance beforehand things that you should do. Now, even as this church is getting ready to celebrate two years in uh, a month and some change, uh, I look back, yeah, shout out for, for the upcoming anniversary. I remember so many days just being terrified uh, because it was just me and my wife, and I would look at her and be like, yo, you might have moved up from D.C. for no reason because this joint, I don't know where this is going to go. And I, I don't have any, when I talk to people about planting a church, I don't have really a lot of great advice on how things happen. Uh, we didn't have anything that was miraculous. It was just a whole lot of kind of ordinary events with ordinary people that God started doing some amazing things. And I love Esther's response. So Mordecai gives her a challenge. Mordecai says, listen, you might be in a place right here exactly where you are for such a time as this. And I believe that God arranges times for all of us uh, and people for all of us to, to interact with that his will can get done. And here's her response. And this is one of the dopest responses in all of scripture. She says, all right, you know what? If I perish, I perish. She was so uh, willing to take a risk. And here's what uh, I love about this church and, and people in, in this community uh, is that you guys are willing to take risks. Uh, you guys are willing to take risks in entering into new things that you might not have ever done before. Uh, we're a diverse church, so a lot of stuff feels new and it definitely feels uh, different. But I really believe uh, so sincerely that uh, the more that we believe two things, one, that God really does have things prepared for us, and secondly, that God has our back, you and I will be willing to take more risks. Take risks with our finances. Take risks with our reputation. To take risks with our time. Take risks with our relationships. That we would be the type of people that would be willing to take risks because we would be confident that God is with us and that God is for us and that God has created in advance good things for us to walk into. Now, Esther saved her people uh, by doing two things, identification and mediation. So Esther walks into the king. Uh, so it was illegal for Esther to go to the king unless the king sent for her. So Esther says, you know what? I'm going to risk it. And if I die, I die. And she walks and goes to meet the king. And for the first time, she identifies as a Jew. No longer is this decree about them. If you continue this decree, it's going to kill me, your wife, as well. So because she identifies with them, she can mediate for them. So Xerxes finds out that Esther is a Jew, and instead of killing her, uh, he grants her whatever she wants him to do, and she says, you know what? I want Haman strung up on a pole and killed. She's a nice lady. I told you this was better than love and hip-hop. And because of what Esther did, she was granted favor, and not just her, but the entire nation of Israel that was in Persia was also given favor. Even though they didn't do anything to deserve it on their own, they were granted to it. They were granted it because of the works of one person who risked it before the king. Now, here's what scripture tells us about Jesus. And this is uh, something we're going to go back to over and over again throughout this series. The scripture in, in Luke 24, Jesus makes a really, really bold statement 
And he says, uh, he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And this is a dope part. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said, said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Here's what Jesus says. All of the scriptures from Moses all the way through all of the prophets through Malachi, they're all talking about me. And check this out. Jesus is the true and better Esther. Instead of saying, if I perish, I perish, that Jesus left his palace in heaven. And as Philippians 2 says, uh, he emptied himself of all of his glory. And instead of just risking his life, he gave his life. And because he gave his life to uh, to the Father on our behalf, you and I can go to that throne You and I can uh, go in with boldness and know that we are accepted and loved uh, unconditionally, not because of what we have done, but because of the one who went, who identified with us, who put on flesh and now mediates for us. In 1 John, it tells us that Jesus sits and he, he, um, it says, dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you so you don't, but if you do, know that you're not alone. You don't have to mediate to the king by yourself. That there is one who went before you that has gotten favor on our behalf. And because of that, listen, because of that, you and I could be able to risk it. Why do we need the approval of other people when we already have the approval of the king? Why do we need to worry about if we'll have enough when we already know that the king of the universe is on our side? And here's what I I run into every day almost in my personal life. Uh, I struggle so much to just trust Jesus and Jesus alone as my righteousness. I want to look to all the good things I've done. I want to look to all of the things that I've said. I want to evaluate how great I've been as a husband, as a brother, as a a father. I want to to look at my record and see how, how good I've done. And I usually end that with nothing but anxiety and frustration that I could have done better. But check this out. Esther's a story which shows us that the entire nation got favor from the king, not because of what they've done. And they only had to rest on what Esther had done on their behalf. Now, the challenge for us, as we live this thing called a gospel-centered life, to breathe in and to understand what it is that Jesus has actually done in our life, that you are not going to be the type of person that goes out of your way, that risks anything if you're still trying to earn it all on your own. But if God, if Jesus Christ has fully satisfied your debt on your behalf, then we can risk it because there's nothing to lose. Then we can put our faith that we are his workmanship and that God has created good things for us to do and we can go out and do it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ uh, on our behalf to, that both identifies with us and mediates for us. And we're not alone. God, we're not left to figure out life alone. And you have given us your spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And your spirit leads us. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, opportunities uh, that we can serve people. God, opportunities to, to work on your behalf that would make us fearless and that we wouldn't be worried about the outcome, but we'd be able to invest and, and go out. God, for those who are struggling to feel your presence, for those who are struggling to feel that you're active in their lives, remind us that you're always working. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.